0: Hi, I'm Darren Steele, and I can't even think straight, so I think queerly instead. I help deep thinkers and creatives connect with their purpose so that you can create more freedom, impact, and joy in life. Well, this is a very special episode, one that I have been waiting to record since, since late summer. So I think since... July or August is when I first reached out to one of the authors for the book um, that we're going to be talking about. This is an interview with the authors of Out North, an archive of queer activism and kinship in Canada. The authors we'll be speaking to today are Craig Jennings and Nisha Eswaran. And I'm pleased to welcome my co host, Jeffrey Yovanone, who's been on the podcast several times before. Now, before I get into the guest bios and into the interview and discussion right away, I just want to say what an absolute privilege this has been for me. I really enjoyed this book. This is one of those great. Gorgeous, big coffee table books it's it's not a document of all of the archives. This is what's formerly known as the gay and Lesbian Archives of Toronto, and it has a particular perspective, which is a review of queer activism and the kinship between different individuals across the country and across time and cultures and race and socioeconomic status and it's a beautiful book and the way in which it's been thought out and presented makes it first of all really enjoyable to view and to read but it's also really easy to consume. You can look at a little bit at a time and just leave it out on the table on the coffee table and come back to it when you want. It was meaningful to me because at 54 years old, I have played a small part in some of the histories that we, t- we talk about. I spent 11 years working at Pink Triangle Press, which was the organization that started the archives before it then, for legal reasons, had to become its own entity. I know many of the people talked about in the book who some of whom are alive, some of whom are no longer with us. I've been to many of the places mentioned in this book from about the mid-80s onwards uh, when I came out in 1984 and I was just barely 19 years old. So doing my homework, reading the book, having this discussion was such a wonderful trip down memory lane. And this ties into the work that I do as a coach and as a messenger and somebody who is looking at how we as individuals see ourselves, see how we stand our ground in the world as individuals, but also as part of something larger than just ourselves. So all of the notes will, will be in the show notes. Any links that we mention will be there. I highly recommend that you get this book if you're Canadian. And even if you're not, if you want to see an example of queer history and just add to your collection a uniqueness that is Canadian queer history, I cannot recommend this book um, more than I already have. I I just love it. And it's incredibly affordable. I think it was about $50 Canadian for for what you're getting is just phenomenal. So the the guest, the author, Craig Jennex, he is an assistant professor in the Department of English at Ryerson University. He's the co-author with uh, Nisa Eswaran of the book Out North, an archive of queer activism and kinship in Canada. He's also the co-editor with Susan Fast of Popular Music and the Politics of Hope, Queer and Feminist Interventions. The other author, Nisa Eswaran, is a writer and academic. Her work has appeared in Postcolonial Text, South Asian Review, Kajal, and Jamhor. I apologize if I've not said those correctly. And she's the co-author of Out North. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, where she researches friendship and anti-colonial history in South Asian literature. And then finally, my friend and colleague, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Jovanone. He's been on several episodes of uh, the Think Queerly podcast. He is a historian, writer, educator who holds a PhD in American Studies from the University of Buffalo. He's a lectur- lecturer in history and the coordinator of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at SUNY Fredonia broadly specializing in gender and lgbtq studies he, his specific areas of focus include multi-ethnic american history lgbtq history of the united states lgbtq community history united states social movements oral history and public history he's currently at work on a book about buffalo's gay liberation movement entitled rust to dreams gay liberation in buffalo new york 1969 to 1984 all right without any further ado I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It is a little bit longer than normal, so take your time with it. Maybe listen to a bit. Make yourself a a coffee or a warm, hot chocolate and put your feet up and enjoy a trip down memory lane with some astute political and social observations, how we relate our understanding of history and seeing ourselves and our places in the world today. All right. I'm here with the authors of Out North, an archive of queer activism and kinship in Canada. And welcome, Craig and Nisha.
1: Hi. Hi.
0: It's great to have the both of you here. I really appreciate you taking time out of your, I'm assuming, very busy schedules.
2: (laughs) No, it's great to be here. Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then Jeffrey, Jeffrey Yovanone, who has been on the Think Queerly podcast a number of times. Welcome.
3: Thanks for having me back. And I'm, I'm really excited for our discussion today.
0: Yeah. Well, let me start by reading um, the first paragraph, an introduction, memory work in the book. And then we're going to jump into uh, the deeper discussion about how this book came about, what this book is. So quoting on december 30th 1977 members of the metropolitan toronto police and the ontario provincial police raided the offices of the canadian gay archives and the body politic one of canada's first and most prominent gay publications police seized 12 boxes of the archives holdings in order to charge the officers of pink triangle press The not-for-profit collective formed in 1976 to incorporate the body politic and the archival project with the crime of distributing immoral, indecent, or scurrilous material. The raid is only part of a long history of police raids that targeted gay, lesbian, and trans communities. In Stashing the Evidence, an essay he wrote in 1979 for The Body Politic following the raids, gay liberationist and AIDS activist Rick Bebou recounts the difficulties and the pleasures of archiving queer history under homophobic and hostile political conditions. That essay is the inspiration for the archival work we do in this book. While there have been many social and legal shifts in Canada since Bebou wrote Stashing the Evidence, memory work The act of remembering, holding on to, and cherishing prior experiences, relationships, and possibilities remain a crucial part of queer life in Canada. So I think that's a really lovely introduction to this fantastic book. And full disclosure, this is really exciting for me because... I knew Rick Bebu. I worked with Rick. I worked for Pink Triangle Press for uh, almost 11 years, from 1993 until 2004. And I worked directly under Ken Popert, who was one of the founding members of Pink Triangle Press and The Body Politic. So when I read this book, it was a trip down memory lane, unlike anything I've done in a very long time, quite moving quite unsettling sometimes to be reminded of where we were and the challenges that we are constantly faced because nothing is written in stone. So with that introduction, I'd love to have both uh, Craig Jennings and Nisha Swarn tell us a little bit more about their role with the archives um, project, the the actual physical archives as it exists here in Toronto, how they became involved, and perhaps a, an overview of the, the history and the purpose of the archives and how this all led to the development of this book out north. Take it away.
2: Oh, that's so interesting to hear about your connection to Rick and some of the other members of of Pink Triangle Press. It's It's funny, neither Nisha nor I had a chance to meet Rick, but we feel like yeah. we really got to know Rick Babu very well through working on this book. Um, Mm -hmm. He's one of the people that we dedicate the book to actually, because part of this uh, research project and the final publication involved just spending a lot of time with his materials and, and his archive and, and his sort of remembrances and analyses of Gay and lesbian liberation in Toronto, um, and so I think we both feel like a real. I don't. I don't want to speak for you, Nisha, but I feel like a real, yeah. a real closeness with Rick in a in a really interesting way. Considering we have never actually gotten to meet, so it's so yeah, nice to hear too. that that there's also this sort of like connection um, for many of us
0: he was a, he was a really lovely person i i didn't work with him directly but he would come mm-hmm. into the offices and um and just sometimes you know how well with the other individuals um but you know and and for people that are interested in this topic my goodness he was a prolific writer of which you can still see his his archive of of yeah. writings online
2: yeah yeah, uh-huh. just such, from what I understand, a really friendly and warm person, but also just brilliant, right? Like, just like mm-hmm. an incredible thinker in terms of gay and lesbian liberation, perhaps in a broad sense, but certainly in a more, like, local Canadian sort of sense. Yeah. Um, but I, I would be happy to go first, I guess, and talk about how I got involved with the archives, oh. and then I'll pass it off to Nisha. But yeah. I've been I've been volunteering at the archives for just about a decade now, so I just... Um, sort of stumbled upon the archives by chance once I was doing some research for an MA level class when I was studying in Hamilton, Ontario, which is about an hour um, bus ride from the city of Toronto. And I went into the archives just to do a bit of research for that. And the night that I showed up to do that research, um, I was welcomed by this really wonderful group of volunteers and other researchers who were there at the same time during public service hours. And it was just such a warm and welcoming sort of experience, and and there was such like a mix of younger volunteers and older volunteers, and young researchers and old old researchers, and so it just felt like a really sort of warm and exciting and generative space. And so I started just going back regularly, and I began volunteering and did some work with the music collection and in the library and those sorts of things. And and I guess I've just been it's become part of a sort of community for me or, or a sense of collectivity for me. Um, with all of the people who amass around it, be it volunteers or uh, researchers or staff members or community members, uh, and it's something that I really sort of value. So that's how I how I got involved in the in the archives.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I got involved through Craig. So I hadn't I had been to the uh, Gay Lesbian Archives in Toronto a few times, um, and, and had gone to uh, exhibitions there and things like that but I hadn't spent a ton of time with the material and so um yeah I became involved through my friendship with Craig uh when the archives wanted to kind of make a collect like do a book that was a collective history um yeah Craig and I decided I would be part of that so I'm I'm always grateful for the opportunity to have gotten to know the space better and the people who keep it alive and everything that's in it.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I suppose that we would have gone to, we had, we would have gone to like some uh, like you say, some exhibits and some events there, but then Mm -hmm. it was really through this book that we got to dive in. Like the two of us got Mm -hmm. to dive into these materials and just spend an absurd amount of time in this collection and working through these, these documents and these objects. Um, And so we really developed sort of like a closeness uh, with the with the materials and the individuals who developed them and put them there and care for them in the space?
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I think it was so uh, exciting to see some of that history in a Canadian context, um, because yeah. mm-hmm. I had spent a very little bit of time, but um, sort of really important time to me at the... Uh, lesbian history archives in new york um and like a few other archives in different in different places but it was it was really important to see that in a in like the context that I was familiar with
0: mm-hmm. okay. perfect well jeffrey um I know this is this is the geek out moment <laughs> for, for you and that this is your work as well. Maybe really briefly summarize uh, for the listener, your involvement. And then if you want to go into archiving and what that means and, and the, the questions we have for our guests here.
3: Well, I, I think it would actually be uh, more useful to, uh, to to maybe hear about some of that from um, Craig and, and Nisha's perspective that, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of my um, interest in uh, in this topic. I'm a historian and I, I uh, broadly study LGBTQ history and American social movements. And, and my research for uh, the past uh, several years has really been a deep dive into LGBTQ history in uh, Western New York. The the primary archive that, that I've um, worked with is the Madeline Davis LGBTQ Archive um, of Western New York, which is um, at SUNY Buffalo State. Um, but um, Craig Anisha, could you tell us a, a bit um, uh, what exactly an archive um, is, but my experience in terms of, you know, talking about what um, Queer history to not non-academics to the general public is sometimes people, you know, don't understand exactly what we're talking about. Um, you know, when we're talking about uh, an archive. So, like, what what is an archive? What does an archive do? And it, when people uh, are able to physically visit the archives in in Toronto uh, again what well, What is that that like? what is the the process? What will they encounter? Um, what are some of the the materials in in the archive that that people might find there?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe what I can do is take a bit of a step back and talk about the history of this specific archive because I think that gives us an idea of the sort of utility or the political purpose of this archive in particular, but I think also archival projects more broadly. So this, the archive in Toronto, the archives, the formerly known as the lesbian, the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives, uh, was formed in the early nineteen seventies, and so it began as just sort of an offshoot project of the Body Politic, um, which we spoke of briefly when we began. But um, when when it began in nineteen seventy three, a few years after the Body Politic started uh, publishing, it was really just. Uh, place to put materials that were being sent to the body politic to put in the newspaper. So it began just as two drawers of a filing cabinet in the office of the body politic. Um, In subsequent decades, it grew in in an incredible rate um, based primarily on the tireless work of of volunteers uh, who would spend nights, sometimes all nighters, just doing this sort of archival work to take care of these materials and to catalog them and to curate them in a specific way. And so it's now one of the largest uh, LGBTQ2+ archives in the entire world um, since its since its start in in the early 1970s. And so this archive privileges collecting a few things, and and a lot of this comes from uh, concern about collecting capacious materials about lesbian and gay uh, liberation and LGBTQ2+ politics more broadly. And then a lot of the interest also stems from a desire to collect things that might not be collected by other archives. So I think there's an attention in this archive that we need to care for things and we need to hold on to things that would otherwise just be lost to history and gone forever. And so we can talk a little bit about those uh, collecting sort of uh, ideals for this archive around things like buttons and T-shirts and pornography and matchbooks and those sorts of things. But maybe we can hinge now to also think about the purpose of archives in a broader sense. And so for me, one of the things that is still so exciting and inspiring about thinking about the past is getting to visit archives and getting to hold the physical, tangible materials of the past in my hands and getting to sort of work through these documents and these objects and these materials that others have made and that others have felt are worthy of holding on to and caring for, and so for me, I think an archive is sort of like a site of curated possibilities, I guess maybe that's too vague, but it's it's really like a site of of inspiration or a site of um, i don't know political teachings from the past, and I think that it's really important that we hold on to these materials because um I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but something about being able to to touch materials that were produced by other LGBTQ2 plus people that I will never get to meet or who passed before I was born. Something about being able to work with the materials that they created uh, and the materials that mark their lives provides for me a really sort of inspiring sense of connectivity or belonging in a broad sort of historical sense. And so I guess for me, that's sort of what an archive is or what an archive can do. It can provide a way to feel connected to the past and individuals that we perceive to be therein.
0: Just a quick interjection here before someone pops in, like a, mm-hmm. a, a very visceral example. There's several examples like that throughout the book. There are um, some handwritten letters from individuals. There are mm-hmm. a, a series of cue cards from um, a political activist who spoke at Toronto city hall in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And I think these are, they're, they're quintessential visceral. That's how we move backwards in time without a time machine, right? Uh-huh. Having that physical connection to that thing to go like, wow, this, this person who really had, a major impact on something substantial, change to perhaps our rights as individuals in society. Here's the very cue cards he held at the podium, making this speech as an example.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great example. Yeah. That's one of the things that I think Nish and I were both sort of excited about including in the book, like reproducing <laughs> those, those cue cards because they're sort of gross, like they're moldy, like they're clearly oh, so wow. old, right? And it's, mm-hmm. But it's just like something about that materiality is also so inspiring, I guess.
1: Yeah, it was really amazing to see them and touch them. Um, Yeah, I think that the the question about what an archive is more generally and what does an archive do, um, I know lots of academics and non-academics are thinking about that question, um, especially in the context of, um, I don't know, some of our thinking about whether anything can be an archive or whether you have to have like, you have to be an institution or you have to have institutional backing. And, um, t- there seem to be like some problems that arise, um, from sort of the more legitimate archives. And so it does seem like people are trying to think of archives as, uh, a, a, div- a diverse and more fluid conception. Um, I think when Craig and I were doing the book, we spent a lot of time thinking about that because we had to, um, I don't know, reckon with what was available and what wasn't available in this particular archive. So yeah, I think Craig's explanation or definition of archives as um, something that preserves our attachment to history and uh, allows us to learn from the past is... Is really helpful and I like to think about it um as an academic and a non-academic I like to think of archives as like uh, places that house um are, or not places that house but places in which our social relationships Um, become intertwined in history you know so um, I feel like spending all this time with all this old material really changed how I live in the world and what I think of as my commitments to communities and how I think about racial and queer solidarity Um, so I felt I felt the change in my own social relationships In a way, I don't think I would if I hadn't spent all this time with the past. You know,
2: that's that's so such a beautiful way of putting it, Nisha. Because I was trying to think of this because I think we also learned a lot by like dealing by working through this archive. But it wasn't that we were just learning about the past through this material. But I also feel like I have been changed significantly in the present Mm -hmm. and thinking about the future, like through our interaction with these historical materials. Yeah. I really love that. It's such a great, it's such a great line about like so, social relationship and becoming entwined with history. That's really beautiful.
1: Thanks. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's it was a joy to do it. So.
3: And and what both of you are saying about you know the the relationships that that we form. Um, with other people in our community across time and space, through using uh, an archive, I, I very much relate to that, uh, and it's also you know making me feel kind of uh, emotional. Oh, sorry about that. My apologies. Um, because we we can't use archives in that that way right right now, uh, right in terms of the the mm-hmm. physicality of working. Um, working with with the materials. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: that's that's such a good point, right? So so in a in a normal time, if you were to visit the archives, you would be allowed in. I suppose that you would not be allowed in currently. But <laughs> if you were to visit the archives, you would enter this beautiful historic building that has uh paintings and photographs and archival material duplications all over the wall, so you're sort of immersed in this collection the minute you walk into the building, and there's a space for you to sit and Volunteers will bring you the materials that you want. and You'll be sitting at a table with other researchers who are also researching LGBTQ2 plus things. And there's just like such an incredible and generative and exciting sort of sense when you are in that space. And when you are like situated within those walls doing this work, that is, you're right, Jeff, like just not at all attainable in this moment, Um, even for volunteers or workers, right? Because in Toronto, at least right now, we're in a, an extended lockdown and, and all non-essential things are, are shut down. And so the best thing, I mean, the staff members are still working so hard to make sure that material is available and maybe tr- trying to point people towards digitized material and virtual collections, but it's just so, it's so different um, than the actual experience of physically being with others in
3: this space with the material. Yeah. so yeah. thinking about you know some of those um materials craig you, you had mentioned uh in the archives in toronto um preserving and collecting uh things like buttons or or t-shirts or or matchbook covers um why would we want to save and um preserve those types of materials relating to mm-hmm. lgbt q2 plus um History, um, you know, these types of materials that that someone might look at that and and say that's not something you know that's worth um, saving. That that's something that you know we might use for a, a short period of time or a specific event or, or for a specific purpose, and then um, then we you know throw it away or it, or it loses its value. Why would we we save those those types of materials?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think. I think there's definitely a question here around like ephemerality or the sort of like fleetingness of some of these materials because so much of what is kept at this archive was meant to to just be sort of a lot of it was meant to just be thrown out, right? It was meant to be to serve a very short purpose like a matchbook, for example, and then to be disposed of. But there's so much sort of there's so much benefit in holding on to these materials because they carry with them so much weight or they or they provide evidence of all of these complicated lives. Uh, and forms of community and collectivity and kinship. And so one thing that we try and do in Out North is we have these different, uh, throughout the entire book, we have little uh, section breaks that involve um, emphasizing and celebrating and sort of analyzing some of the special items that are collected by the archives, and matchbooks are one of them. And we try to contextualize these in a broader discourse about how, you know, for a lot of gay and lesbian uh, spaces or spaces that, Permitted gays and lesbians to to be there. Um, matchbooks were like the primary form of, of of publication or or of promotion of that space. Um, but what was really beautiful when Nisha and I were looking through these matchbooks is there were also so many matchbooks that are promoting a a space that was perhaps. Um, available to gay people. But there's also all these like really beautiful handwritten notes in a lot of these, whether it's just someone's name mm-hmm. and their phone number that sort of provides material evidence of these connections and the and the sort of moments of of love or joy or cruising or whatever. Um, and so just looking okay. at these objects allow us to to do this sort of imaginative work, I suppose, or to do this sort of thinking about what what is what those objects Evidence or or allow us to to
0: imagine. If I could interject here, because I'm old enough (laughs) (laughs) and I'm dating myself here, because you know I was mentioning to Jeffrey, I wish I had saved some of the matchbooks, and if if I could just see a matchbook cover from Bar One Hundred One, otherwise known as the Rock and Roll Fag Bar, that was One Hundred One Jarvis Street, and it was the very first gay bar that I ever went to in 1984. Um, and you know, here's what that matchbook cover triggers as memory. First of all, I had them in my pocket. I had people's phone numbers in those matchbook covers. Mm -hmm. They were, I didn't smoke, but this is when people still smoked everywhere and smoked in bars before, you know, you weren't allowed to smoke in public Mm -hmm. places. It had that sort of like personal aspect of Connecting with other individuals because we didn't have cell phones back then. There was no internet. There was no email in 1984, 1985. It was the way it was, matchbooks were the grinder and the scruff of that period of time. <laughs> um, and it just reminds you of what no longer exists. Like remembering when I think of Bar 101, I always think of going to Byzantium restaurant that was on Bloomer Street, which then became the Versace um, store when Bluer Street became very hoisted toity And where all the super rich in Toronto would go shopping and Byzantium 1101 were owned by Chrysalis Records. And then, you know, so that for me is mm-hmm. the triggering of holding on to that kind of physical ephemeral item.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing to hear. So great. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I'm really I'm maybe Craig too really happy to hear that seeing the matchbooks in the book could trigger those memories and I mean there's so much yeah.
0: more to the book than just the matchbooks. Yeah. <laughs> but just uh, yeah. jumping on what you were talking about about mm. the importance of keeping why keep these ephemeral things? Why keep these buttons? Why keep these t-shirts? Because well, it also reminds those even when I see things that are before my time, you know, there's Mm. almost perhaps a longing for wanting to experience what would have that time felt like? What would that world have looked like? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think one of the really interesting things about looking through the buttons and T-shirts and matchbooks is that it seems like such a queer form of communication um, Mm. that might have not been visible to like straight society um and i am sure those forms of communication are still there it's just harder to see them so when i look through um yeah when i look through some of those materials it's it's kind of exciting to to feel like maybe that that was like a, a queer secret you know um it's it does something i think to 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 feel that
0: Mm -hmm. Can you expand a little bit more on that? A queer secret. I love that.
1: Oh, well, I think just I've been thinking a lot about how there are signs that um, queer people give each other that might not be visible if um, you're outside of a queer community or, um, you know, you're straight or something like that. Like I don't know how how lesbians tell who else is a lesbian you know like these things are sort of really important to me um like sort of lots of conversations about well if you're a femme lesbian how do you like project that into the world so like other lesbians know you are so these kinds of things there seems to be um lots of codes or signs that we either learn or know more naturally Um, and so I think of the sort of ephemeral things like Craig said as having that quality that they might not be visible to the larger society uh, but there are ways of communicating with each other
2: yeah I'm thinking of being at a maybe being at a bar that is not a gay bar right and and pulling out a rock and roll fag bar matchbook and just sort of like holding it so it's visible to those who would understand the reference. So it's like a, mm-hmm. a visible signal to those that would understand that it like associates me with, with gay culture in that moment. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but feeling kind of some excitement, knowing that others who would not get that reference, it would be completely lost on them. And it maybe does not put me in danger and these sorts of things, but the mere act mm-hmm. of just sort of pulling out a a signifier like that, like a matchbook in that way, and just sort of playing around with it at a bar and trying to signal to others, I think is a really exciting, yeah, Nisha, I think you're right. It's such like a cool thing to think <laughs> about and how these yeah. things might move through the city in subtle and, and less subtle sorts of ways.
3: This is just a, f- a final <clears throat> comment I want to make about this, this discussion is um, the the special materials sections uh, in the, the book were actually some of my favorite sections. And, and uh, I don't know if this was your uh, I- intention in including those sections, but I, I felt like what, you were really doing there instead of uh it just giving us uh okay here is the narrative of queer history in Canada that that this archive tells you are actually showing the reader this is how we use an archive to actually um reconstruct the past and then uh how we use that past to help us think about Uh, the present and, uh, and, and the future. Uh, And so I don't know if that that was what what you were thinking with those sections, but that's what I got from it from uh, as a a reader that I think added some real depth to what what you were doing in this project. Nice. Good. Yeah, Yeah, that's good to hear. I think
2: we're happy to hear that I think, yeah, um, <laughs> I
1: think
2: that I think you're spot on. I think that's precisely uh one of the reasons why we wanted to include these slightly different sections to sort of emphasize mm-hmm. these materials um and I think another thing is we just wanted to we we also kind of wanted them to serve as like a call to action, like a sort of reminder to anyone reading the book that like these are there are very diverse forms of materials that this archive collects, and so if you have them in your possession and want to to give them to this archive so that they can be kept and cared for. Um, These are the sorts of things that, that this archive collects.
0: Well, that reminds me, I have, uh, I have a bunch of magazines called mailbox. It was black and white, Uh, Brandon Matheson, who was the original editor and publisher of that magazine. And then he came on board as the, um, Publisher of Capital Extra that was launched in Ottawa, where I first started with the press in the summer of 1993. And then I took over some of the editing of that as my I had a multiple roles in that in that uh work, but I think I have about 15 from one to fifteen. I should probably just donate those to the archives, <laughs> pull them out of my file boxes. They are actually in nice little plastic sleeves to protect them as well. So
2: Oh, nice. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> but maybe transitioning now into, I, you know, obviously we're talking about the book, but I was <clears throat> wanting to focus first on like um, history, keeping archives than the archives proper here in Toronto, but the idea for the book and how it came about. So just to remind the listener, the title is Out North, an archive of queer activism and kinship in Canada. So perhaps if if you would both speak to that and and as well, the defining purpose of the book
1: yeah that's an interesting question. Um, I could say a little bit about that uh, Craig, you might have you might be able to speak better to like how the actual idea for the project itself came about, um, but I can speak to what we thought of the purpose. Um, And part of the purpose, I think, was really to bring the materials in the archive to a wider audience on the one hand, um, because we sort of had the privilege of spending so much time with it, um, and Craig in particular from his volunteering. I think the more, or not the more emotional, but the more particular to the book um, purpose was to... Uh, take it as an opportunity to really think about what the relationship between queer history and activism is to our social networks or to kinship so um, there are lots of exclusions in the book right things we couldn't fit in things that weren't in the archive that we wished were there uh, lots of material we didn't know what to do with and so I think one of the defining purposes or the most important one for me was to think about all the, the forms of kinship that exist um, underneath or through a set of materials that is in itself incomplete, you know? Um, So we spent a lot of time as we were looking through things, um, trying to think about how did those materials come to be in the first place? You know, who who was working together in order to produce it? Um, what sort of seemingly divergent groups um, invested in different politics uh, came together to produce this? And so we found all these really beautiful examples of um, solidarity, you know, across different um, different categories and different um, identities. To to come to a sort of shared political interest. And so I think that was one of the big purposes for me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think when you, I think you've nailed it, Nisha. I think, yeah, so I think the, one of the sort of, I think unimpetus for this book was, yeah, this desire to share this material and this collection with broader audiences. Um, because there was this sort of awareness of how lucky we were to be able to spend time Digging through this stuff and and wanting to, to make it a little bit more accessible or a little bit more public. Um, Nisha's emphasis on this idea of like coalition and collaboration was also huge for both of us as we worked through this material to think about, you know, what sort of coalitions have become possible at different moments and what are the like foundations or what is the framework that makes thinking as a collective or thinking as um in collaborative ways. What, what is it that makes such thinking possible? Mm-hmm. I think one sort of additional purpose of the book is also just to emphasize the Canadianness of some of these, these histories, because so much of, um, what we know about queerness in Canada, and I know I'm certainly guilty of this is just, I think I tend to have, I think many of us tend to have this assumption that whatever happened in the United States around lesbian and gay liberation, for example, um, is indicative, in some ways, of what happened in Canada, though it was maybe a bit colder up here, I suppose. And and so, <laughs> I think I think one thing we wanted to do was pay attention to more local histories and and find ways to to take a deeper dive into uniquely Canadian stories of liberation and of political activism and of coalition and collaboration.
3: If I could kind of piggyback um, <clears> on <throat> what uh, what Craig just said, you know, in terms of looking at. Uh, some of the the local histories um you know one of the things that that really um struck me about the book is you know if if we uh compare what happened in um to, uh Canada to the US for example um in terms of um LGBTQ history uh i think we do see some common themes but then there's a lot of you know local specificity here and uh, you know, you. I don't think you uh, outright come out and say this in in the the book, but it's working against uh, right some of um, the assumptions that oh, Stonewall was the beginning of uh, of everything, and that happened in New York City, and then right people in in the U.S. and then other parts of the world um, just copied that. Right, and there's a a, a tendency to reference. Uh, everything in in relation to Stonewall right like some people will talk about the uh Toronto Bathhouse raids in 1981 as Canada Stonewall or uh the the raids on the bar um Sex Garage in 1990 um i believe as you know the uh, Montreal's um Stonewall and i think this this book does a great job of um you kind of unpacking how that, that narrative and while it, it is helpful in some ways to have, uh, an origin story like, uh, like Stonewall is far too, uh, simplistic and that when, when we do that, there's a, a, a lot that we're leaving out of the story. I, I also liked how you, you touch upon, um, the tension between what was happening in, um, larger, I guess cosmopolitan um I'll say cities like um Toronto versus um I think you you use the term um in the book um prairie cities. Um you know and in in particular you, you talk about uh an an organization from um Saskatoon, Saskatchewan called the Zodiac Friendship Society and how a member of that you know, organization wrote to the body politic and said that, um, they had Torontorosis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Could could you, you talk a bit more yeah. about, um, that tension and kind of balancing, uh, you know, large cities like, like Toronto with other areas of, of Canada and, and how you sought to do that, um, when you were putting the book together.
2: Yeah, we, um, I think Nish and I are both committed to like, really trying to emphasize stories of LGBTQ2 plus politics and liberation and culture that occur outside of, of Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. And part of this, I think, has to do with the fact that we both come from other cities, like from the West Coast of Canada and from the East Coast of Canada. And, and so we're both very well aware of the queer possibilities and the queer politics happening in spaces outside of of Toronto. So we were really attuned to this I think we were limited in some ways by the archive itself that we were, that we were working through Um, because so much of the history of this movement and so much of this archive is quite Toronto centric. And I think that's in a sense, that's sort of bound to be expected, right? It's an archive that exists in Toronto. Um, A lot of the major things with what we have come to understand as the lesbian and gay Uh, liberation movement and LGBTQ2 plus politics more broadly have occurred in Toronto. So there is like, I mean, it makes sense that there's some Toronto Ness or some Toronto centric uh Ness to this, to this material, but Mm -hmm. there's also so many exciting stories outside of Toronto that we wanted to emphasize. And I think we, I think we did this in some ways. I wonder if maybe if there is going to be a volume two, I wonder if volume two is something that's more sort of focused on, on cities that are not Vancouver, Montreal, or Toronto, like maybe it's, it would make sense to take a deep dive into some of these smaller locations. Um, we were really lucky that there are lots of great academics and researchers and activists who are producing work about smaller cities and more local histories that we were able to draw on. Um, but yeah, it's an, it's an interesting tension, right, of trying to tell this story, but trying not to just repeat these same sort of claims about the... Um, primacy of one big major city.
1: Yeah, I think that was the sort of ongoing concern. Um, certainly also the editors and the publishers wanted uh, to try and intervene in that as much as possible. Um, but it is difficult, I think, and it must be true in the US as well, if like major queer cities are New York and LA or San Francisco. Yes. Um, yeah to, to try and intervene that when like, so, so much, like so much is organized around the urban rural divide, you know, like certainly politics, but also the division of resources. And um, so I'm sure there's just so much that was happening in smaller cities that, either didn't get recorded by the archives or didn't get sent to the archives, but also might not have been visible in a, an urban based queer politics. Um, yeah. So I think we tried to, to, to account for that, um, that there was a sort of limit to what we might even understand as part of queer politics, uh, mm. given, mm. given our perspective from Toronto. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's such a good point, right? Because there's so much that there's so much activism that is probably illegible to us or like inscrutable to us because of the sort of frame or lens uh, which we approach these sort of like notions
3: of political activism and action. Yeah. And is there, is there anything that you really wished was in the collection but isn't there?
2: I would maybe say one thing. Well, here is what I've been thinking about lately, and I am sort of curious to talk about this with you, with you all, um, okay. because I've been thinking about. There's, I was I was home in Nova Scotia and talking to some people who are doing research there, and they I was asked, you know, should we send this material to? Um, should we send this material to the archives in Toronto? Right, like is that is that the logical place where this should be sent? Because um, it's related to gay and lesbian liberation. Um, or it's related to trans politics or queer politics. And it was a really tough question to answer because on the one hand, yes, like I wish that this archive in Toronto was so much uh, so much bigger, right? And I, I wish that it had so much more material, but I'm also left wondering if it makes sense to send all of this material to this one centralized archive, because I wouldn't want, say, an undergraduate student from Dalhousie University in Halifax to have to travel to Toronto to research, lesbian history in halifax um and so i've been thinking a lot about like this tension between um, a centralized national archive and maybe a network of of more local archives Mm -hmm. where those materials are able to stay a little bit closer to home Um, and i know this is a this is kind of a bad answer based on that question but this is just something that i've been thinking about so much lately and i just i don't know i guess i have some anxiety around this idea of like how should we move forward should we continue to grow this archive should we try to make uh should we try to Uh, support the creation of of more local archives that we can somehow develop a network around. And, and I don't know, I guess I've just been wrestling with these questions for a little while now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, that's a really interesting question. I think Craig and I spent some time wondering about that as we were doing the book. Um, But one of the sort of limitations I think of having a central archive is that then everything gets filtered through the metropolis you know or like the center of queer politics oh. um in a way that would necessarily lose some of um the beauty or utility of things that come from elsewhere um so i'm i'm not exactly sure what i wish was in there just for that problem like i i do think it would have been really cool if the archives had more material from places even close to like the centre of Toronto, but not the centre of Toronto, like Scarborough or something like that, Mm -hmm. like places um, where mostly working class communities of colour live and uh, would have also their own unique um, queer histories. Uh, But at the same time, I think it's okay for those histories to be in their own places. You know, I just... I I hope there's a way in the future we can kind of um not necessarily bring everything together if that wouldn't be in the service of those histories but to kind of destabilize the mm-hmm. the unequal power dynamic there you know so that things that happen in downtown Toronto don't get taken the most seriously or don't have like the biggest role or something like that.
2: Jeffrey, do you find this a similar tension in your work? Because I know that you do sort of like Western New York state, right? Yeah. That's sort of your, yeah. your focus. And so yeah. where do you go to find the archival materials to support that type of research?
3: Well, I, I, the archive I, I mentioned that I primarily work in, the the Madeline Davis archive, um, is actually one of the the largest collections of uh, LGBTQ materials in the country um, outside of uh, uh, New York City and uh, San Francisco, so like East Coast, um, West Coast, right? Which tends to be the the focus here in the the U.S. There's a lot of emphasis placed on uh, it's bi-coastal. Um, narrative and and i think about these same you know questions um as well right like i totally agree with um anisha that not everything should be filtered through um the the lens of um the metropolis or just a few um uh, archives that that have you know particular uh reputation maybe because of the the institutions that uh, that they're they're connected to, um, and then yet at the same time, right? If we have these smaller, more localized um, regional archives, how do we get the stories that different archives tell to speak to each other to create a more uh, more holistic uh, a more holistic narrative, right? And I I, I think that there's um, I'm seeing a lot of uh, overlap um, and, you know, similarities between some of the events and people and themes that you talk about in uh, out North. And then some of the things that I'm looking at in my work that happened in um, Western New York. Right. And then how do we get, get those stories and those narratives to um, speak to and interact with each other? Uh, because I think that's, that's so crucially important, um, because then I think that results in us thinking about, um, uh, each of those particular regional, uh, regional histories, uh, differently. Yeah.
2: And I, I, and I think your emphasis on like the importance of archives working together or speaking to each other is also so important, not just around geography, but also in, in terms of other forms of identity or other identity markers. Mm-hmm. And, and we try to talk about this a bit in, in out North, um, because there's a lot of material that relates to LGBTQ2 plus history and culture that is sort of pulled in different directions. Like the University of Ottawa, for example, has the Women's Liberation Movement, and of course there are important materials in that archive, and that have to that would also fit in the Archives archive. And there's things in the Archives that could also fit in that archive, and and there's a Two Spirit ar- archive. Uh, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and there's a trans archive in victoria b c and so there's all of these different projects going on and if there's a way that these things that these separate archival projects can support each other and speak to each other, I think that's really the sort of the challenge for these archival collections moving forward because i mean I think it's important that that there are these different collections in different spaces, but you're right it's it's also important that we that they speak to each other and that they inform and animate each other.
3: Uh, I think, you know, also, it, this question also comes into play in terms of um, right, people deciding where they might donate their their materials, right? Um, mm-hmm. Do they want to divide their collection up? And then what does that mean? And maybe it would, you know, make sense for them to... Um, Donate their collection to a more regional archive because that's where they're from, or that's where they did a lot of their work. But then, right, um, maybe then wanting to balance that out and uh, donate things to a larger archive that gets more more um, traffic, so that you know people will actually um, look at and see and, and and use their material. So I, I, I think mm-hmm. that these questions are, um, coming from multiple angles, right. That, that, um, it's not just something for us to, to consider as, uh, historians or, uh, researchers. Um, but, uh, that the, the community is also, um, wrestling with some of these
0: tensions as well. Well, I want to move on to kind of, um, a framing, a perspective of how we see ourselves as, you know, broadly labeled queer people and the politics of that. So I want to juxtapose two quotes from uh, very different sections of the book. And I'll explain where the first one comes from after I read it, because I think it creates a very different effect. So quoting, for thousands of years, homosexuals have been the scapegoats of anti-homosexual societies. Throughout Canada's history, our sisters and brothers have been thrown in jail, hounded into hospitals, forced to hide and pass for straight, conforming to other people's prejudices. Even today, Canadian homosexuals are having their careers ruined, being kicked out of their churches, having their children taken away from them and being assaulted in the streets of their own cities. What have we done to deserve all this violence and hate? Love. Love. All we want to do is love persons of the same sex and live our lives as we decide for ourselves. And for this, we're taught in our schools to hate ourselves. We're labeled sinful, criminal, and sick and fired from our jobs no longer. That's from 1971, Charlie Hill's speech on Parliament Hill um, at the We Demand rally. And just to juxtapose, to contrast, (laughs) since that word isn't coming out of my mouth right now, (laughs) contrast that with um, the section 1981-1999, No More Shit, where uh, you as writers are commenting on the 80s into the late 90s. And this particular section of the book, and I quote, central to this section is our worry That this period in queer Canadian history can be easily lost or re-narrated to suit the ostensibly queer-friendly times in which we live. Indeed, by the end of the 1990s, gays and lesbians were recognized by the state in unprecedented and for many meaningful ways. So there's a lot there from Charlie Hill's speech in 71 at a time when, you know, we were really just starting to get some rights and uh, legal uh, abilities, for lack of a better word, uh, in Canada. But much of what I quoted from his speech still resonates as if it were today and certainly resonates, if not worse so, in many other countries around the world. And then just I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea of re-narration this is why i see a book like this as so important even the simplicity of having a matchbook cover because it's so easy to say oh it's all great and almost gaslight what has come before
2: yeah yeah this yeah. is a great question i think um you make, i'll just start and give some canadian context and then we can sort of Go for it i guess but i guess one thing that i just wanted to say was just there's this um desire i think contemporarily in canadian culture to imagine the past as bad for queers right as bad for lgbtq2 plus people and to imagine the present as like the ideal moment the, or the moment of like ultimate safety and acceptance of lgbtq2 plus people and so one thing that i think nish and i are both committed to is trying to push back a bit on this progress narrative and this idea that things were terrible and they are now great, um, which I think we both read as being too simplistic to really capture the, the nuances and the details of the history that we're trying to tell here. And so I think that the the quotation that you read, um, Darren, about the from the, the ch- chapter introduction, I think that's one thing we're trying to do here to say, let's not allow this history to be. Um, interpreted or rewritten in a way that is just a positive sort of representation of, of this past. Like, let's, let's be sure to also keep our eyes on the violences and the negatives that, that so many people have lived through and continue to live through, because that's part of, of telling this story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, things have definitely changed and uh, I would, yeah, I would, be lying if I was if I said I wasn't like extremely happy um about lots of those changes and mm-hmm. so much privilege comes from the state recognizing me, you know, which it which it does. Um and so I think our our hope was to kind of balance out um that that happiness with the changes um that have come with uh some acknowledgement of the cost of that and I think much of the cost has just been like the hard work and organizing and dedication of queer activists and other comrades um, for so many decades Uh, but also some of the cost has been um, kind of letting go of an internationalism you know so uh, for the for the main route of queer politics to have been um like a class-based one and to sort of destabilize the um class interests of straight society uh to something else you know so i think i'm i'm trying to be aware that my own recognition by the state um comes from being like a good citizen and um being sort of hard working and this and that you know which i think has come at the expense of, um, some more internationalist class-based anti-imperialist politics, you know, which I think Craig and I were both so happy to see that in, in the material of the past that people really took their commitments, um, beyond queerness, um, really seriously. And, uh, sometimes it feels like that's harder to find these days.
2: Yeah, and I think for both of us that was part of what drew us to this project and this archive in the first place, right? Like I I do maybe this is too simplistic to say, but I do often think, Nisha, that maybe we were like born too late or something. Like I think we're kind of old <laughs> souls in a in a sense, the way that we both sort of like desire for, have desires for history perhaps, but I, but yeah, I think you're right. That's one of the things for me that was so exciting about this book was being t- able to find like tangible examples in the past that we can continue to learn from. And that still holds so much potential for our politics in the present. Um, and so we're really trying to push back on that idea that like things have consistently gotten better and the sort of like linear notion that things are, are fine now, because that also dismisses a lot of these really amazing and beautiful and wonderful political movements of the past Mm -hmm. that perhaps did not come to fruition and so i think part of what we want to do in this book is to to reanimate those past moments or to turn to these these prior instances to think okay what can this continue to do for us in the present what sort of potential does this continue to hold and how can that alter how we approach the world or our political sort of uh stances So
3: on on that note um uh, and, and at one point in in the book uh, I think maybe in the the epilogue um there's a discussion of the the concept of um uh, archive activism um, do, do you see this book itself or the the process of creating the book um as a form of activism oh that's an interesting question. question.
0: Well we, we we really worked hard to make sure we had interesting questions for yeah. you. <laughs> you. Nailed it. So so
3: that the the book isn't just um you know re- recording the the history of certain mm-hmm. activist movements or moments in um Canada, but um is actually an active participant uh in and of itself in that in that legacy, perhaps. Mm-hmm. right
1: um i tend to i th- i haven't i have to say i haven't thought of it as uh necessarily an activist project but um one that might contribute to the way we think about activism i think or like we okay. think about history that would be my impulse i don't i don't know if I would think of the writing of it in and of itself as activism um but maybe Craig, you have a different response. That's my immediate one.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've never really thought in these terms before. I think it's a book that is made possible through activism. Mm-hmm. I think that I sort of interpreted our work here as more of like a curation, in in a sense. Not that that isn't its, could not itself be a form of activism, but um, but I guess I, I mean, I guess we might think of it as activism if in the sense that one of our primary goals in this was to sort of amplify these lesser known stories. Um, yeah. and so that I think has some sort of like uh, political function or political force. And I'm seeing this with, um, like with working with my students through this book and having, and seeing them get excited about these stories that they had not heard of before. And so, so I think there's, there's perhaps something, something there because, um, I mean, ultimately, we set up this book to to share these stories and these materials with broader audiences um, and so I hope that is is what we were able to do.
0: well, if we delve a little bit more into this and this might um, um, at, not so much add credence but um, build upon uh, jeffrey 's question as uh, doing archival work as as political, um, I shared the article facts in flames trump's dishonesty reminds us of why we must preserve documents even in the digital age archivists are crucial by uh a richard Ovenden, and i'll have the link to that in the show notes um the author in that piece he argues for the importance of preserving both sides of division And I'm just pulling together a larger quote into something shorter. So I quote, looking back at the Nazi book burnings in 1933, this low moment for human truth had lesser known responses that should not be forgotten. Exactly a year later on May 10, 1934, the Deutsche Freiheitsbibliothek opened in Paris rapidly. It collected more than 20,000 volumes, not just the books that they had that had been targeted for burning in Germany but also copies of key Nazi texts in order to help understand the emerging regime so I'm wondering if that adds some more thoughts to this work and I don't know if necessarily materials are on hand at the archives from those who were well actually I shouldn't say that there there are examples some very painful examples um in the book of people who are working very hard to suppress our rights and our identities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting the sort of reference to Nazi texts or the sort of like presence of Nazi politics because I think one thing um, that was interesting when working through the archival material is sort of the prevalence of Nazism and fascism f- consistently through this history. Um, one oh, of right. the yeah one of the the pin buttons that we have on the cover of the book. Uh, is from the 80s, and it says gays against Nazis. And it's just, it's so interesting, right? Because it's, we're in a moment when Nazis are quite proud and quite sort of open about their their political stances. Um, And so it's interesting to see that surface periodically throughout throughout this history. Um, And you're right that we did want to include some examples of these sort of uh, oppressive or violent um, histories in this book. And so we do include some uh, promotional material that was put together and put in people's mailboxes. We include some hate letters that were received by prominent uh, LGBTQ2 plus politicians, because I think it is important to to not gloss over those sorts of moments, because so much mm-hmm. of the political action that happens afterwards is in response to or um, animated by those sorts of violences or forms of oppression. And I think that's part of the story, right? That, like, that's part of the story of LGBTQ2 plus politics in Canada. And it's something that I think is important to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, I, that was my sort of, I, Craig and I share that thinking. And as we were looking through things, it was quite stark, like the things that we came across. Um, and I mean, it was certainly good for us, to that the archives decided to keep some of that so we could like know what what people were going through and what they were responding to and like how it shaped uh what kind of queer organizing happened, you know? Um so yeah, I would I would I would agree that that seems important uh today as well, you know, with the resurgence of uh so many of these terrifying politics.
0: This might seem like i 'm jumping off topic but i but i 'm not um, i 've just got a particular fascination with uh the author christopher isherwood and and germany and and his uh, diaries i I studied German language and linguistics in mm-hmm. in university went to the master 's level at that and there 's something about Isherwood is very prolific in his biographies, and a lot of his fiction is you know, based in that time pre-World War II in, in um, Germany, going out to the, the gay bars uh, with W.H. Auden. And it's mm-hmm. his telling, his relating, whether it be in his diaries, his journals, or whether it be through fiction, that tells us something about the time that we don't get so much from a matchbook cover, but we might get from that saved letter that's in an archive from somebody's journal that speaks to this aspect of keeping both sides of the division or both sides of the the duality from the physical history to the personal Mm -hmm. rote history, so to speak. And I wonder if you might add to that.
3: Could
1: you repeat the question again? <laughs> <okay. It> was, <laughs> i got lost thinking more, about christopher it, isherwood and it wasn't a,
0: to, to be fair to you it wasn't a question it was more <laughs> of like an observation um just the thinking sort of outside of the box about how mm-hmm. we archive our history um yeah. and so someone like a christopher isherwood or even more contemporary uh felice picano that the well-known mm-hmm. author of the lure and like people in history from the United States, and so much of his fiction is is seen very clearly in his memoirs, um, and literally being, even though a fiction author, having documented the AIDS years, the HIV/AIDS years yeah. uh, through the 80s and the 90s, um, and and using that, maybe the, the the question is, how how do we look through different lenses? At history, how do we then archive to um, create an understanding or a perspective through Mm -hmm. these different lenses?
1: Yeah, I, I think Craig and I thought about that a lot as we were uh, going through things and um, pulling materials and deciding what to keep and what not to keep. Uh, So I'm not sure how how we do that. I think that. What's been helpful for me in kind of thinking through things is is keeping a distinction in my head um, between what is material we we keep in order to understand things and um, what is material that's like used, to, that's disseminated and used um to create kind of conflict or harm uh, to other people. And it seems like the kinds of questions everyone's asking now about, um, yeah, oh, like censorship and free speech, and what do we do with um, really troubling ideas that, I don't know, maybe archivists have like a slightly different role, which is to um, not necessarily to be so so concerned with, um, what goes out into the world, but like what records we can keep. And so, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm really glad that the archives has, the archives in Toronto has kept like a, a lot of, um, a lot of perspectives on things, including, including dangerous ones, like some of the, the materials in the book, you know? Um, but I don't know if I think that those should be out in the world in, general so it's it's tricky I'm not sure if that even gets close to having an answer but maybe Craig
3: do you? I mean
2: I'm I'm with you Nisha I think this is this is a really difficult question to think through and I think um I don't know we we had so many conversations while working on this book about like holding on to the complexities of the past and 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 even if that meant coming up with a more sort of messy or muddled or a less cohesive or linear or direct story, it's still important to hold on to those things because we don't know what those things might spark for our readers. Um and so we wanted to include some of these really sort of difficult things, these these sort of like potentially harmful materials, in the hopes that it provides a more capacious story about the the complicated history that we're trying to take up in this, in this book. Mm. Mm.
0: Jeffrey, any um, thoughts on this? I mean, I think whether you want to go in a different direction or you want to speak to uh, the quote unquote triggering uh, materials, you know, my opinion on that is in the larger context of a work like this, it's important that that be represented because that's very much a part of our history. And that. Mm-hmm goes back to the um uh changing the narrative as i was i was talking about in that in that earlier quote um to rewrite history in the oh isn't it so great now present moment yeah uh, you know and
3: the other thing i was was thinking about here uh and i i think this happened um you know after uh the the facts and flames article um, that, that you cite, but then, so we have uh, media outlets in the, the US, um, you know, thinking about uh, a Trump presidential library uh, and what that might look like. And, you know, I can say that it's one archive I definitely do not want to visit. But um, and, and talking about uh, how um, Donald Trump is shredding documents and not um, preserving things that he is supposed to preserve. Uh, and, 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 this is something that we need to be, uh, mindful of in terms of, uh, of people in power, um, especially those that, that have more, um, authoritarian tendencies, right? Because we, we see this with, with, um, Trump, but then also, right regimes like Nazi Germany that we've referenced that um there's this willful destruction of material of of the truth to to uh cover up some of uh the the misdeeds of uh of the past right to 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 cover up some of the true um, the horrors that that, that have occurred in, in in history, and we need to be mindful of this too. Um, you know, the this conversation re- reminds me of um, in the the Davis archive. Um, there's this uh, block of wood that has um, homophobic slurs written on it that someone threw through a community member's window. And that they thought that that should be um in the archive as uh, a physical right example of what some of the backlash that you know they as a queer person from um from buffalo um experienced, and we we need i I think it just goes to show that we need that side of the uh, the The story too, and that this this loops back to um, the the narrative of progress um, that that you bring up in, in in this book that you're trying to um, to to complicate it's just not this easy right A to Z line of um, oh things were bad in the past and then right we see this um, progression steady progression towards um, liberation where everything is is, is good now. Um, it's much more complicated than that, and uh, and also, right? Some of that, the, the changes that have been made, that's through actions that, that that and choices that people are making in specific moments, and that's not something that's natural or inevitable. It needs to be something that's um, continually um, defended and, and worked toward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think you're. I think that's such a beautiful okay. way of putting it, right? Like this
2: this violence and this oppression and this trauma, these are all major parts of the stories that we're trying to tell about LGBTQ2 plus history, right? And it's important that we hold on to those things. I think it's also important that community archives in particular hold on to these things. So your references to Trump um, just had me think about like the 1776 commission, for example, that yeah. I think Biden just dissolved by executive order his first day as, yeah. as president, right? Which is just this like, this government sanctioned and sponsored and funded project of just completely erasing or attempting to erase a particular perspective on justice and history. Right. And so it's, it's important that we have community historians and activists and archives that are not beholden to the sort of um, government structures necessarily. I'm just recalling there was a moment in the eighties when, the archives of Ontario, so the provincial archives um, of of the province of Ontario, approached the archives, the lesbian and gay archives, to ask if they wanted to be folded into the archives of Ontario. And, and in a way, this was very appealing, right? Because it meant um, adequate funding and proper infrastructure and full-time employees who would care for this material. But at the same time, there was this suspicion or worry about, okay, what happens then if this collection becomes part of a governmental collection, if be- if it becomes part of the provincial government's sort of documentation of of history. And so ultimately, the collective with the Gay and Lesbian Archive decided not to become part of the Archives of Ontario. And I think that we're very lucky that they they stayed independent, right? Because I'm not sure that all of this material would have survived or would have been as accessible or presented in the same way that it was for Nisha and I, as we were working through this book, Mm -hmm. if they did not remain independent from some of these larger institutions.
0: That's so interesting. I can't imagine with our current Ontario uh, provincial conservative government that uh, Doug Ford would have not, um, or would have ignored the opportunity to slash funding to that. And I had, I had actually prepared another quote from that article. I mentioned facts and flames Um, And I quote, protecting democracies against alternative facts means capturing the truth as well as statements that deny it Mm -hmm. so that open societies have reference points to trust and rely on, end quote. And, you know, you've just made that very clear, Mm -hmm. Craig, that the independence in some ways, I mean, both are great, you know, provincial or federal levels of funding, uh, but also private funding and fundraising. And the diversity of these different types of archives is, is the 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins, so to speak, right? (laughs) Given what you've done with the book and the research as you've presented it, to me, it begs the question of the difference between liberation versus assimilation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, the, the, the liberation, the queer liberation, gay liberation, that term more from the seventies and thinking to Martin Duberman's book, has the gay movement failed, which really documents an American history and, You know, some of the far more organized, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't say far more organized, but the very um, uh, relatively large uh, gay liberation front and other things like that. So, you know, we look back at the history of of Pride as having been primarily a protest. Um, And then in the middle 80s, when it was almost like a death march, um, when people were just dying like crazy uh, because of HIV AIDS. Um, using the book out north as a microcosm of queer history in Canada. And, and given that it was just released during the COVID-19 lockdown, it was like, uh, I think in the, in the summer or late fall last year, it came out and that pride of course was virtual across the world. Nobody was able to, uh, well, I think they did in some places in the States, but more as protests around the the BLM mm-hmm. Um things that were happening at the same time. So we've experienced this temporary pause from physical gathering, celebrating, uh, participating in marches and parties and protests and celebrations and all the like. And I'm wondering if this has provided some insight looking at this history and and just per, perhaps just on a personal level, um, you don't have to espouse any views unless you want to. Um, your thoughts on liberation versus assimilation, and and how not so much what should pride do as an organization, but how do we express our pride as individuals within this um, these various communities that calls itself the the LGBTQ two plus community ever expanding acronym.
1: Right. Big yeah. question. I don't <laughs> ask huge, easy questions. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm good, good,
2: good, complicated, huge question.
1: Um, in terms of the liberation versus assimilation, I know that Craig and I talked a lot about that as we were working on the book and as we've been doing interviews and things like that since then um and i guess yeah i i think one of the things uh we really hoped for the book was to both document the really important changes that have happened um but to try and distinguish yeah between like which ones were uh forms of assimilation or lent themselves to that um and which ones maybe lent themselves to a kind of broader liberation and I guess one of the things I learned from it is that um, the dichotomy isn't so easy to maintain so like lots of things um, that were really important for liberation uh, maybe have also slipped into a kind of assimilation you know so it's like really really uh, important that queer people are free of like, are able to live free of violence, you know? Um, But I don't think that that freedom from violence should, I don't know, be tied to class position or race. Like, that should just be a a universal thing. So I think it's tricky, Craig. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Craig, but it's been helpful for me to think not that what we've done exclusively is assimilate but that things have just been separated so yeah we've lost sight of some of the the more universal liberatory possibilities um so I don't know I'm kind of stuck on that one because I I also don't know if I believe that everything has been assimilation uh, Mm. but some of has you know so
2: yeah yeah and one thing I really value about Nisha's thinking is sort of the way Nisha that you really do complicate any sort of sim- simple distinctions between liberation and assimilation and and I don't know you've you certainly encouraged me to think in more complex ways around these things and so maybe since you talked about liberation and assimilation I'll talk about this idea of like protest or party because I think my answer with that is, is kind of similar. Like I, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about um, sort of moments of pleasure and moments of joy um, that is attainable through participation in queer music cultures. And so I think where I'm sort of landing on this is, is the importance of pride being both a protest and a party, because I think, I think for, for a lot of us, moments of bliss or moments of pleasure that we might um get to experience through sort of social events or parties or on the dance floor, for example, like, I think for a lot of us, attaining a sense of possibility and belonging and collective agency and, and, and possibility for the future. I think these things often are the foundation on which we build our political movements. So I think if I'm on a dance floor at a party, at a pride event, and I get this sense of of belonging and individual and collective agency, or if I get this moment of of even for a brief moment getting to imagine what a more emotionally fulfilling world would be, or a more just world should be. I don't think that feeling necessarily ends the minute that I leave the dance floor. I think that's something that has altered me significantly, and and I think that altering is often what sparks political um, participation and political movements. This this. So I I guess what I'm trying to say is I think sometimes parties allow us to recognize what is possible and allows us to um, feel like we are part of a fight for something worthwhile. And so I've been trying to think in ways that parties themselves are the foundation for political movements, or I've been trying to think about the ways that joyful feelings allow us to imagine a world that could be different and
0: that we should be working towards. Parties allow us to recognize what is possible wrote that down that's I and and you know I'm it's not that I'm on the fence I think um just to interject and I would Jeff I definitely want you to jump in here I I I think both and I Mm -hmm. you've said it in a way Craig that I think I was I was missing the the phrasing or the way to encapsulate it because you know I've done both and I I love being able to celebrate In in what is pride as almost not so much a victory, but it's like Mm -hmm. wow, like we can do this out in the park. We can do this and feel safe Mm -hmm. the whole long weekend in Toronto when it was in you know Friday all the way through to late Sunday Mm -hmm. night. That we can be out at three o'clock in the morning on Church Street when the weather is gorgeous. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that wasn't possible. Whereas I remember marching down Church Street when the Pride Parade went down Church Street and we went over to, um, uh, sorry, not City Hall, the Ontario Legislature when the NDP were in power and they had an open vote and they voted against, I think it was Bill 172, which would have allowed adoption for gay and lesbian couples and we felt betrayed because the ndp were the socialist party so to speak and they were on the sides of gays and lesbians but no they were not because it still involved children Mm -hmm. and so you know i have these memories of both participating in the protest being an organizer for queer nation when i lived in ottawa and then reveling in the queer joy Looking around and seeing the faces of that young man or woman who's come in from Sudbury, who's come in from Ancaster and has never Mm. been to Toronto and has never seen so many freaking queer people in their life. (laughs) And they're literally, they they don't know what to do with themselves, right? That is recognizing what is possible. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, That's
1: that's that's the amazing way of putting it, Craig. Thanks. Yeah.
2: I've been thinking about this because um, my next sort of major research project is on the role of popular music participation in the gay and lesbian liberation. And so I've just been thinking about how, you know, there are these moments of joy where, I don't know, we we get to glimpse the possibility of a queerer world. And I think for me, that's what started my politicization process or my becoming process as like mm-hmm. a queer person was this desire that, oh, this feels good. What if the world felt this good all the time. Like what needs to happen? What needs to change so that I can feel this sense of belonging and joyfulness with these like other queers that I am surrounded by that I do not know what, what needs to happen so that this feeling can exist outside of this space as well.
3: Yeah. Craig, I really love what you said because I think it reminds us that uh, we often think of liberation as this very big picture concept, creating big systemic changes, but that that can also be something, uh, very personal and that that also needs to happen at the level of, uh, the, the self, because we have to have a certain, um, level or amount of, uh, personal liberation to, as you said, uh, show it, show us what's possible so that we can even do something like showing up and, and, um, getting involved in in political work or uh, a a social movement uh and it's i think those smaller moments of self-liberation that can lead us to engaging in uh in some of that uh, larger transformative work yeah yeah
0: beautiful well this has been (laughs) really amazing and and for me quite transformative hearing um your perspectives on how this book has come together and your thoughtfulness in what must have been a large number of questions that i'm sure you didn't have answers for um, each and every single one of them given how this book is laid out as as a, a gorgeous coffee table book that you know is is full of images of what's in the collection Um, maybe just two final questions, not so much rapid fire, but, um, what, for each of you, is there a single favorite part of the book or a single favorite moment in the, in the creation of this book for you? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs)
1: Um, yeah, there were lots of amazing moments, um, I think, and maybe, uh, Craig and I share one. This one, um, I think it was a really amazing day when we found um, a diary oh, yeah. of uh, Anne Spalding, who's who's in the book. Uh, she she sort of was part of this group of traveling lesbian separatists called the Van Dykes, um, and we found her diary and was just i i don't think i'll ever forget like what it was like to look through that and um to just read in her own writing what she was up to in the 70s and 80s and her in her own words like what like why she started this group of traveling lesbians and what um yeah what like liberation and freedom and, like, heartbreak and everything meant to her, uh, I think that would, that sticks out in my mind.
2: I, sure. I agree. That's one of my favourites from the book as well. Um, Just, like, getting to learn about and then tell the story about this travelling group of lesbians searching for lesbian utopia. Like, it was just so... <laughs> incredible to work through the 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 journal of this of this individual there's also a picture that really sticks in my mind and it's from 1989 um and it's a picture of a woman named eva helpert and she's standing on bay street in toronto and it's in front of a, a a toronto office of bristol myers the pharmaceutical company and she's there um with her father elmer and she's probably, I would say she's in her 50s. Elmer's probably in his 70s. Um, and, and Eva's son was diagnosed with, with AIDS. And Bristol-Myers was withholding a drug that could have saved his life. And so she went and protested in front of their offices every day um, for a period of like four or five months uh, in, in a row. And her and Elmer were there every day. And she's holding a sign saying, you know, my son is very ill with AIDS. Please help me by calling Bristol-Myers and telling them to release this drug. Um, and that's been a, that's an image that has really stuck with me. Just seeing these two individuals who who were just there every single day to try to bring attention to this to this issue, I thought was really beautiful.
3: Wow, I was really moved by uh, the letter that the, uh, the Clarence Barnes letter mm-hmm. that you start the 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 book with. I think it comes even before your your introduction um and, and maybe you could talk a bit about why you you included it, it there but um i just thought it was so incredibly um touching and and also uh, a great way to frame the history that came after it, uh, because he's very much kind of talking about this uh, tension—how uh, he was uh, outed in the the varsity, which is the student newspaper for the University of um, Toronto—and that it was the the best and the most liberated that he had ever felt. But yet, at the same time, there was this kind of sense of danger and and fear that was also um lurking in in the back of his mind um after right his, his sexuality was publicly revealed yeah yeah so you're right this comes before
2: our introduction it actually comes before the dedication page and before the contents page and i think one of the reasons we wanted to do that was both because of the content of the letter because you're right it sort of talks about these tensions of being like feeling you know, Clarence Barnes felt liberated by this information getting out there, but also was seeing almost immediate uh, adverse effects as he was working at the University of Toronto, right? Like colleagues who were starting to shun him because of this. And so it really like captures that tension. Um, and I think one other reason that we wanted to include it early is because it's also just this sort of remarkable object, right? It's like this handwritten letter from December 1976, Um and here, the way that the designer, Jess Sullivan, designed it, it almost like mm-hmm. melts into the page in a sense. Like it's, it's just, it becomes the entire page uh, in a way. And so I think there's something both about content and about form there that we really wanted to open with. Uh, we wanted to open with this in order to call attention to those things.
0: It's a very powerful um, document to not only how things change. And I say that carefully, not how much things have changed, but how things change full Mm -hmm. stop. Whereas, you know, today you can become a a YouTube star by being bisexual, pansexual, trans, and it doesn't mean you won't receive backlash, but you could become famous. Mm -hmm. Whereas coming out as this person did, um, meant basically the loss of your income, the loss of your reputation mm-hmm. and we have a certain level of uh, good fortune and privilege in the majority of North America but other parts of the world are not so lucky and like this is a testament this entire book and I can't pick a particular favorite other than and this is not meant to sound egotistical i i I'm proud that I've played a part, however small, and whether it was an unrecognizable role in various things I've been a part of um, in in queer history in, in Canada and in political queer history. And it's been an, a, a privilege to know many of the people um, still with us or no longer still with us that are documented in this book. Um, and it makes me feel very proud of the ways in which we or these individuals have helped form Canadian society because they're queer as a word is different on the margins it doesn't necessarily have to be identified with one's sexuality and it is the duality between the status quo that we present that alternative. We present that unique, creative way of looking at the world. And the archives and this, this book documents the not only the, the paraphernalia, such as matchbooks or T-shirts or CD covers, but the narrative and emotional representation of the people who have gone before us. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> think that's a really
2: beautiful way to put it and i think it means a lot to us to hear you say that because this yes. book is sort of a critical accounting of the of these histories but at the same time it's also a tribute to all of the people who who made this book possible and who who made not only the work that nish and i do possible but also like the lives that we lead
3: yes, possible
0: right and so
2: yeah that's i'm really happy yeah. to hear that you see that reflected in this
0: text Me too yeah. thank you thank i'm you. glad I'm going to have in the show notes where you can buy the book. Um, But if either of you have any particular parting thoughts, um, and then we'll, we'll call it a wrap.
1: I think that's it. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. I just want to say thanks as well. It
2: feels, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you're all feeling this, but, we're still trying to like act as though things are normal during this pandemic, right? Like we're all still like working and serving neoliberalism and capitalism as we're required to and things, but it also just feels so lonely. And so there's something really, there's there's something really wonderful about getting to chat with you for the last little while, just to think about these things and remember that we're, you know, we're part of like a broader collective who is, who cares about these things and is wondering about these things. And no, that's just the last this conversation has been very fulfilling to me. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And I really mm.
3: appreciate it. All
1: yeah, right. thank you. It's yeah. it it is starting to feel unusual to have I don't know, such nice meaningful contact and yeah, prolonged right. <laughs> periods of isolation <laughs> and stress. You
2: know? That's why there's such long pauses between your questions <laughs> and our answers, because we forgotten <laughs> how to have these sorts of
3: conversations, or I have at least. Oh my god. Yeah.
1: But, yeah. <laughs>
3: I just want to thank both uh, Craig and, and Nisha for creating um, this book. Uh, I think it was, it's just such reading it the way it's designed is such an immersive um, experience, uh, and I think that you know you you broaden my understanding of uh, not just queer Canadian history but um, queer history in general. Um, and I, I just feel very, very moved by kind of the sense of, of uh kinship you create in uh in this book uh between those of us in the the, the present and uh and, and the past and um you, you know and, and I'm not even Canadian, but um there's certainly so much national history here, but then I also think that there's a, a broader um story here that that transcends um national boundaries that will uh, will will speak to uh, a lot of people uh, and, and then to both of your points about you know in the context of of the uh, pandemic um, you know, being able to have these deep and meaningful conversations I think also reading the the book at this time was such a moving experience um because it's like okay these you know people will understand why. I, I'm personally feeling frustrated that I can't work with uh archives right now in the way that um that I, I would like to and the, and that that uh, to me also feels like you know being isolated from um, my community. It's almost like you know, I I can't visit my friends or something <laughs> that, uh like that because you you create these re- you have these relationships with uh people that you only know in the context of an archive and that it, that the materials that um, they've left behind. So I think that the experience of reading the book right now um, also helped me to to work through some of those those difficult uh, emotions. Oh, wow!
1: Really glad to hear that. <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: yeah. And well, if that is in a sales pitch, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what is.
1: Yeah. I'm really glad that the kinds of um, kinship stories we were hoping to to focus the book on have come through, and that's definitely from all the hard work of Figure um, One Publishing. Um, so we should thank them too.
0: Well, yeah, and I'll have the, the links in the show notes, but Out North and Archive of Queer Activism and Kinship in Canada is uh, available online from uh, the archives directory directly. Um, Glad Day Bookshop in Toronto, if you want to support your local uh, queer community bookstore. So thank you again to authors Craig Janix and Nisha S. Warren. And Jeffrey Yovanone, I appreciate the, the three of you being here and contributing to such a, uh, a thoughtful and meaningful conversation today.
2: Thank you, Darren. Thank, Thank you so you much. So much.
0: Thank thanks, you. Darren.